Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us. I hope each of you will take your Bible this afternoon and evening and open up to the book of Amos. If you're using a pew Bible, that's in the early pages of the 800s, uh, somewhere around 800, uh, 6, 7, 8, 9, and through there will be the book of Amos. And what we will strive to do tonight is to look a little more in depth, the book as a whole. And that's not always something that keeps you on the edge of your seat so far as sermons, because in order to cover that much, there has to be less application and more staying right with the text. And I hope that to do that uh, is something that you would enjoy tonight. And if you open your Bible, it's usually easier to uh, appreciate that. It's wonderful to be a part of a congregation where so many are busy doing good. We're so proud of our young people. Uh, several of our young men and young ladies right now are involved in programs uh, as learning to be better servants of the Lord. Some of those programs for the young men are about to start. Others are underway. Uh, for the young ladies, I'm told that the younger age group this afternoon uh, met and learned more about the teddy bear ministry and 17 of these young ladies in just 20 minutes time stuffed 66 bears. And uh, we're proud of you young ladies. I know the older group of young ladies... They are thinking in their classes over the next few weeks about how to fly for God. That's find God, learn of God, and yearn for God. And so they're learning a lot in classes that's motivating them to learn and serve God, and they're practicing it out in their life, and the young men uh, are, are soon to be underway. And we want you young people to know that we're proud of you. Uh, we're proud of you for doing that and having that interest and that desire to serve God now, and we hope that that's never quenched uh, as long as you live on this earth. Amos, that gentleman that describes himself in the seventh chapter as more of a sheep breeder and one that, that went around piercing the fruit, if you will, of a sycamore uh, tree so that he considered himself the one to be a farmer. But yet, if God asked him to go and spread the word, he was willing to do that. And what an example for any of us tonight is, no matter what our occupation is, if the Lord has an opportunity for us to serve in other areas, let us never say, no, I, I'm not that person. If God's given us the ability and he's given us the opportunity, that becomes our responsibility. Amos is a wonderful example of that in the Scriptures. He was a man, as we go back to the, first few, the very first verse of the book of Amos, he was from Tekoa. That was a town that was about 12 miles south of Jerusalem, that being in Judah. Keep in mind, we're looking now as two kingdoms, a northern kingdom of ten tribes and a southern kingdom of two tribes. He was from the southern kingdom. 12 miles south of Jerusalem, and God says, not only do I want you now to go and prophesy, I want you to do it in the northern kingdom. In other words, he was going to become a foreign missionary, if you will. And so he goes, and he has a tremendous message for the people here in a very difficult time. There's nothing like preaching the gospel or teaching Bible classes or setting in on one-on-one -on -one studies whenever people are hungry to learn. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's an entirely a different setting when you go into that class or you preach that sermon or you sit down for a one-on-one -on -one study and the people aren't receptive. 
They wonder why you're wasting their time. They wonder why you're saying these strange words. No one would follow that. No one would live by that. But Amos continued to do the will of God in prophecy. For that, you and I have to admire this man, Amos. He went into a place of luxury to teach a gospel to people that believed they didn't need God. This book should be an eye-opener to you and I in the state that America could become if we continue to be a nation that thinks we can rely upon the resources and the riches that we have forgetting that those are from God. Let's think about the book for just a moment. The book as a whole, when we look to the first chapter and a little bit into the second chapter, we see that he is denouncing the sins of the neighbors of Israel, which is very interesting. He labels six of those neighbors and tells specific wrongs that they have done of which he will hold them accountable. The seventh neighbor that he lists there is that of Judah, which is the southern kingdom. Then he denounces the sins of Israel. And under this heading, we see three things. Not only does he denounce the sins of Israel, but if you look in your Bible as we begin, for example, in, in chapter 3. You notice how in chapter 3 begins with the words, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. Go now in your Scriptures to the fourth chapter. In the beginning of the fourth chapter, Hear this word. You cows of Bashan. See how he's saying each time, hear this word. In other words, God has given him a prophecy that he is to share. The, the fifth chapter, hear this word which I take up against you. So in these chapters, he is denouncing the sin, but then as we go into the seventh chapter, he's revealing visions that he has seen, given, of course, from God, of what's going to happen to the children of Israel if, in fact, they choose not to turn away from the sin that they are living. And keep in mind, 30 years from now, they've not turned away, and these things happen to them as they go into destruction. Because of it being passages of visions, we see these chapters beginning with these phrases. Look in the seventh chapter. Thus the Lord God showed me. We go to the eighth chapter. Thus the Lord God showed me. We go to the ninth chapter. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said. So each of these chapters is where Amos is saying, I want to tell you what I saw in a vision. The previous chapters is, I want to tell you what God has told me to tell you. But then finally, the book closes, instead of hopelessness, even though for them as individuals, their life is becoming hopeless, for Israel it's not hopeless. And so the last several verses of the, of the book, he gives hope in the fact that Israel will rise again. And of course, it's going to come about through Christ's kingdom. Let's go back and let's look at some of all of the things we've just discussed tonight as we go back to Amos, the first chapter. And let's see not only what God's Word is, but as we go over this, you be thinking of applications that we can make in our life today in 2004 in the nation of America. It's interesting the first place that he starts is by saying, let me tell you the sins of some of your neighbors. I wonder if he did this because he knew that the children of Israel, if he didn't start here, God knew that that's one of the things they would have said. 
Have you ever noticed, it's not just when you're correcting children, it's also when adults are corrected. They often say, yeah, but what about so-and-so? But what about so-and-so? But what about so-and-so? Well, I'm better than those people over there. And so God just begins with all the people around them. It's interesting. God doesn't overlook the sin of even the heathens. And He doesn't just put them in a lump category and say, they're heathens, they're wicked. He says, let me tell you, Israel, here's the things I have against these nations. Here's the sin that they've committed that I won't forget, and I'll punish them for that specific sin. Now, I need to learn tonight, God doesn't overlook anyone. Our friends out in the world, God knows their sin. He's marked their sin. And they'll be held accountable for their sin. How important is it for those of us that know righteousness to remember that so that we'll have a heart of compassion to teach those in the world how they can have forgiveness? Quickly, let's look at some of these sins that he says of the neighbors. We're back in the first chapter as he denounces the sins of the neighbors. At Damascus, he tells them, beginning in verse 3, that he's going to remember their sin because of the cruelty that they offered in warfare. In the sixth verse, he mentions Gaza. And because of their slave traffic, he's going to remember their sin and punish them for it. In the ninth chapter, he mentions Tyree. And he's going to remember them because they had broken some kind of brotherly covenant that they should not have broken. In the 11th verse, we see Edom mentioned, and he's going to remember their sin and punish them because they've practiced a hatred toward brothers. And then in the 13th verse, he's going to remember Ammon, and that is, again, because of their cruelty in war. That's where even in war, they didn't just kill the women, but the pregnant ones, they ripped open the belly and took the baby out. And in the second chapter of Moab, he's going to remember them because of their lack of respect for the dead. So six times he says, let me show you. I don't appreciate sin anywhere. I'll punish sin anywhere, whether it's among the heathens or even if it's among those that once claimed to be loyal to God. And then he mentions two nations that should have been loyal to God. They were the chosen. First, he mentions Judah in the fourth verse of the second chapter. He's going to remember them because they despised the law of God. In other words, Religious corruption was taking place in their nation. Now, that takes care of the neighbors that they had around them. Now, for much of the rest of the book, Amos says, let me talk to you guys now. He's talking to Israel. He says, here's what God has against you. And he begins denouncing sins. As we begin looking in the second chapter still, in verse 6, he mentions how they would sell the righteous into slavery. You remember we looked at that this morning. We're in the sixth verse, and down in the middle of the sixth verse of the second chapter, he says, because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. And then we go deeper into this chapter in the twelfth verse, and we see not only were they making slaves out of those people that were righteous, the oppression here, where the rich are becoming richer because they're taking advantage of the poor. And he says, now you didn't just stop there. Can you imagine how prophets must have spoken against this in the beginning? Can you imagine how prophets in Israel probably said, now listen, what you rich folks are doing to the poor just isn't right. Now, if you're the poor and you're controlling everything, what are you going to say to those people? Stop it. Look in verse 12. At the, but you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, 
do not prophesy. Why did he have to send a prophet from the southern kingdom to prophesy to the northern kingdom? Because the folks in the northern kingdom says, we don't like what you're saying because it's contrary to the way we're living. We're going to cease prophet speaking. Do we need to change our lives? Or we need to change the message? And we all know the answer to that. If it's a message from God, we change our lives. But Israel had a mindset that says, we don't like the, the message, so we'll just change the message. We'll put it on mute. We won't let it be heard. A third thing that he had against them that he brought up, and of course you realize going through, we're not mentioning every detail, but trying to hit on some high points that give us an overall view of the whole book. Going into the third chapter, we mentioned this one this morning, but in this lesson we need to put it in line because it was so important. In the third chapter, beginning at verse 9 and 10, talks about the sins that they committed before all the world. In other words, their wickedness was so great, it wasn't something that was just hidden in Israel. But even those of Ashdod and those of Egypt would assemble on the mountains and they would see the oppression, even to the point that they didn't know what was right, and finally ending in verse 10 by saying, this is the Lord says, who stores up violence and robbery in their palaces. And that takes us to the fourth chapter where he elaborates that more as he talks about the luxury that they accumulated because of their violence. These people didn't have things because they worked hard. These people had things because they were dishonest and they were brutal. And so he mentions that in the fourth chapter in verse 1. As he said in the middle of the verse, you oppress the poor and you crush the needy. Now, in 4 and 5 he mentions something that is mentioned scattered throughout. Uh, this writing of, of the book of Amos. Not only was the oppressing of the poor so that they could have luxury a tremendous problem, but also false worship was a tremendous problem. You see, when the kingdoms divided, the Jews could no longer go into Jerusalem that were part of the northern kingdom, could no longer go in Jerusalem and worship. The kings in fear that if the people did begin going down to Jerusalem to worship, they feared they'd lose their kingdom. So they began setting up false worship. They began setting up idols. They began setting up temples in locations that God did not allow. And of course, idols that God did not allow, offering practices that God did not allow. And so he speaks about this in various ways. For example, in the fourth and fifth verses is spoken of, still in Amos the fourth chapter. He says, come to Bethel and transgress at Gilgal, multiply transgressions. See, what he's saying is you come to these places and worship, but notice every time you worship, you transgress. Now that's a good question for us to think by application. How does God view it when someone worships the way he says not to worship? He counts it as a transgression. We can't say, well, at least someone worshiped. No, worship that's false worship is a sin. And so we read on here. He says, you bring your sacrifices every morning, you tithe every three days, sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven, proclaim and announce the free will offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord of God. He says, you love the kind of worship that you're offering. But God says, I don't love it. I can't accept it. We don't have time to develop this point tonight. But will you take this one and think on it? How much in our society today, and I'm talking about a religious society, how much in our religious climate today, how much emphasis is placed upon people enjoying worship as if that's a standard? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I believe we can worship God in spirit and in truth and enjoy it. 
But keep in mind, never in the Scriptures has someone's love for the worship service been a standard of whether or not it was right or wrong. And when I use love, I'm talking about an emotion of appreciation. Here, God said, God said, you love the worship you're involved in. But it's wrong. We need to make sure that first, our worship is acceptable to God. Then, love it. Now, tying into this, we're going to break our, our, how we've been going chronological through this chapter here, uh, through these chapters for just a moment, and we'll come right back to it. I want you to jump ahead with me to make a similar point again over in the fifth chapter. I want you to notice a very interesting insight that he gives here as he speaks to the children of Israel. He says, picking up in verse 25, this is Amos, the fifth chapter. He says, Do you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? And you carried Sikath, your king, and Shion, your idols, the star of your gods which you made for yourselves? Therefore I will send you into the captivities beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Do you see what it sounds like? He is accusing the people of here? Israel. When God was out there leading you out of Egyptian bondage, and He was feeding you manna, and He was giving you quail to eat, and He was providing water for you, and He was leading you to the Canaan's promised land, go ahead and tell us what you really were hiding in your sacks. Tell us what you made on your free time. And can you imagine the blush in their face as they said, we were still hanging on to our idolatry. What idol in our life do we have a hard time giving up? What is it that we know separates us from God, but yet we just can't give it up? Friends, that's what they were going through. Because you see, their idols so oftentimes help them fulfill fleshly desires. For example, if, if your idol was one that lent itself to fertility, you could practice unfaithfulness sexually, but yet chalk it up to a worship to your idol. And so it's almost like now when someone struggles with fornication or adultery or pornography, and they say, I know I ought to serve God, but I don't want to give this up. That's where they found themselves. Their idols were fulfilling fleshly pleasures. It was giving them control. It was fulfilling the desires of lust that they had. And he's calling them on the carpet. He says, listen, it may have been over 200 years ago. Much longer than that. But the problem you have today is not new, Israel. You had this problem before you ever had your homeland of Canaan. As a matter of fact, we won't take time uh, to read it, but if you want to make a note, it's very interesting. In Acts, the seventh chapter, 42 and 43, that's what Stephen is quoting before he dies as he's convicting still the lineage of these people of their sins. And they're still not wanting to hear the truth in Stephen's day. And he's reminding them, your people have always struggled with learning the truth and sticking with it. But isn't that our human nature? I'm not trying to just point a finger at Israel and say, look how terrible they are and look how good we are. Look at our human nature. 
we struggle with finding God, serving God, and sticking with God, and no one and nothing else. And so he's urging the children of Israel. He knows their time, their day is numbered. He's urging them, repent before it's too late. Let's go back now to our sequence. We're back in Amos now, and we want to see another thing. Not only was there a problem of false worship, but now when we go back to the fourth chapter, look at verse 12. And this was the point that we closed with this morning, but I want you to see the, the verses that follow this. He's telling them in verse 12, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. And the verses leading up to this, he has told them ways in which God has chastised or will chastise them giving them opportunities to make them think to turn back to God. The people apparently weren't willing to do that, whether they were or whether they were not ready. The point was still the same. Prepare to meet God. God will be patient with us. God will chastise us. But the bottom line is, prepared or not, spiritually, prepare to meet God. I want you to imagine, and I'm not belittling, I want us to see it as I think the text is laying it out. In other words, we need to be aware of the fact we can be an opponent of God's. Now, it's crazy to think about any of us wanting to be in the ring, opposite corner from God. Not to belittle it, but I want you to think with me for just a moment. You see a match and you say, in this ring is God. In the corner of this ring is God. Now, we just read that in verse 12. He says, now prepare to meet Him. Israel's in this corner. God's in this corner. What does verse 13 say? It's as if the announcer can't stop there. He says, oh, let me introduce to you this God that's over in this corner. For behold, He who forms mountains, creates the wind, declares to man what his thought is, and makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth. The Lord God of hosts is His name. And in this corner we have Israel. Dun, dun, dun. That's right. Look, ignore the chapter break. Ignore the chapter break. What's the very next verse? It's a funeral march. He says, prepare to meet God. Let me remind you who He is. And now let me start singing the funeral song. Verse 2, you're the virgin of Israel that's fallen. You shall rise no more. You'll lie forsaken in the land. There is no one to raise her up. It's the lamenting that's described in verse 1. Amos has such strong words for Israel. He is trying to get their attention. You remember the words we studied this morning. He called them a cow. Now he says, you're opponent of God, and I'm singing your funeral song. And then, that takes us now as we go uh, to the 18th verse of the 5th chapter. And even talks about some who are going to have false hope. Keep in mind, if you heard Amos, you might say to yourself, oh, well, I guess I do want to prepare for God. But the question is, are you really serious about preparing for God? The application for us today, are we really serious about being Christians? Are we willing to submit every area of our life, full submission to God? He says, let me warn you, and let's begin reading 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. In other words, somebody says, now they're not serious about it, they're casual. They say, oh sure, I'm ready to meet God. He says, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? 
It'll be darkness, not light. It'll be as much as the man who fled from a lion and a bear met him. Kind of humorous, isn't it? Not if you're that man. Wow. I was going down that path, and there was a lion. I didn't know if I could outrun the lion, but I took off running as hard as I could, and I ran into a bear, and he ate me. Or, he says, it's like the man that escapes to his house. Look at the next verse. Whew. Finally, he can lean back on the wall, and a serpent bit him. What's he saying here? He says, Israel, there's some of you that think you're ready to prepare. You, you think you've prepared to meet God. You're not ready at all. You may have think that you've made a turn, but your turn is still toward destruction. You may have think that you've ducked into safety some way, but the serpent's still there to destroy you and devour you. 21 and following of this same chapter is how God says He hates worship that's not acceptable. 21. Now you think when God uses the word hate, how strong it must be. I hate, I despise your feast days and do not savor your sacred assemblies. Could there be assemblies God hates? Absolutely, He despises Now, as we move on to the seventh chapter, we're making a break in our outline, if you will. Up to this point, we've been talking about the oracles that that have been spoken that denounce. Now, let's pick up the pace very quickly, and let's just mention a few of the visions that he said. Not only are these the things God wants you to be aware of, but he also wants you to know some things that are going to happen. In other words, before he says, here's the condition you're in, Here's some visions I've seen of some things that's going to happen. So we begin the seventh chapter, and immediately he says there's going to be locusts come down, and all of your, your crops, everything that is of a, of a nature of produce, is going to be destroyed. Then we go to the fourth verse and following, and he says then fire is going to come in, and the fire is going to be so destructive, not only does it destroy the land, it's going to lap up the deep. In other words, the waters will actually be destroyed because of this fire. And then he goes to the seventh verse, Now notice what's happened up to this time. All the good things on the land is destroyed, and now the land itself is destroyed. And that's not enough. Beginning of verse 7, he says, I also saw God holding a plumb line. In other words, now we have a a type of surveying instrument. He's cut you out, Israel. Your produce, your production's been destroyed, your land's been destroyed. You've been destroyed, Israel. That brings us down to the 8th chapter where he saw another vision. And it was the vision of the summer fruit. How many of you have ever had a basket of fruit and maybe you went on vacation and you forgot and left it out on the counter? Or maybe it's back in a, in a, a utility room or a back room and for whatever reason you were gone several days and you come back and, ooh, that's nasty. He says, Israel, your summer fruit. You may look real pretty at the moment, but it doesn't take long for pretty fruit to become a stench. And that's the way in the 8th chapter he identifies Israel. They're summer fruit, and they are on their way to becoming rotten. That takes us to the ninth chapter where he says, I saw the Lord standing on the day of judgment. 
Now, when he talks about this, this time of judgment, maybe I should say time of judgment and not just the day of judgment. He says he saw this time of judgment. And in this time of judgment, there's several verses here. We'll just bring out a few things, scanning like from beginning at the first verse and the midway through the verse. He says, I'll slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from me will not get away. In verse 2, he says you can dig, you can climb. In verse 3, he says you can hide. But the point is, you can't run from the judgment of God. It's because of all of this that we have the underlining uh, theme that has oftentimes been called the most popular phrase in Amos. That is, back to that phrase, prepare to meet God. You can't run from God. You can't hide from God. Amos, what do you want Israel to hear? I want them to hear this. Prepare to meet God. Amos, here we are in America today. And we have some of the similar struggles that those people have. What do you want us to hear? And he'd say, I want them to hear this. Prepare to meet God. Are things hopeless? No. The last verses, 11 through 15, is where he writes and says, even though this nation may seem to be almost destroyed at this time, there will be coming a day that it will be built back. Verse 14, I'll bring back the captives of my people Israel. You notice back in verse 12, he says that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does this thing. And again, if you want to do further study, look over in Acts the 15th chapter when James and the others that were elders and apostles then were trying to decide what are we going to do with these Gentiles up in Antioch. You know what he quoted? He quoted to them these verses out of Amos. He said, God told us Gentiles would be accepted. Amos said it. They're accepted. As we close, I want us to think about what would be an answer that would solve so much of these problems. He says in the 8th chapter, beginning at verse 11, the Lord said that I'll send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, not a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. As he writes on, he says, they're going to search for God, but they won't be able to find Him. Young, beautiful maidens won't be able to find God. Strong men, young men, won't be able to find God. Why? Because there's a famine of God's Word. There can come a point in our life as a nation that we could actually search for God, but we're so far removed from Him, it's hard for us to find Him. That's what we see the former areas of Russia going through. They say, well, I remember my grandparents talking about God, but we don't know really about this God. We're having a hard time finding Him. Let's make sure in our lives that we never become so separated from God that we have a hard time finding Him, but let's make sure that we're honest with ourselves. Let's make sure we realize that luxury and immorality and false worship and all these things are not going to give us the relationship that we need. Feeding on God's Word, desiring to build a close and right relationship with Him is what we need. A lot of lessons we can learn from Amos. Sheep breeder, locust tree farmer, or or sycamore tree farmer, but a powerful prophet for God. If you need to be baptized into Christ this evening, if you need to be restored, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand as we sing.